The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. This morning we'll be looking at Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, down through verse 15. Luke writes these words, he says, Soon afterward he, that's Jesus, went on through the cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Chuzza, Herod's household manager. And Susanna and many others who had provided for them out of their means. And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it, and some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture, and some fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it, and some fell into good soil, and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. When his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they are in parables. So that seeing, they may not see. And hearing, they may not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God, the one uh, along the path, or the ones along the path, and, and those who have, uh, are those who have heard, then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they heard the word, or hear the word, they receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while. And in the time of testing, fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. That's the word of the Lord for us this morning. I've made my choice. I love Jesus Christ and I try to serve him to the best of my ability. How about you? That's a direct quote from a man called Bill Bradley, if you're my age or older, you might know the name Bill Bradley. If you're from younger generations, maybe you're not familiar with him. These words come from a tract that he had authored over 40 years ago. He was a former U.S. senator who, back in the year 2000, made a run at at the presidential nomination. But prior to becoming a politician, he was an Olympic gold medalist in 1964, a phenomenal basketball player in his day for Princeton University. 1965, he was the NCAA Player of the Year. He played, went on to, to, following Princeton, go to Oxford, where he went on a, a Rhodes Scholarship, a very bright and intelligent individual, who later came back and played basketball for the New York Knicks for 10 years, all 10 years with the Knicks. Won a championship in 1970, and then again in 1973. Immediately upon retiring from the NBA, he decided to run for office for U.S. Senate. 1979, he was elected to the first of three terms as a U.S. Senator from New Jersey. And then in 2000, he ran for the Democratic presidential nomination. He lost to Al Gore. But in the midst of all that, Bill Bradley wrote these words in a gospel tract that he had authored. 
This was early in his life, or about the time that he was in Princeton. But by the time you get to 1996, it seems that everything changed. Chuck Colson, in one of his breakpoint commentaries, commented on how what an outspoken Christian individual Bill Bradley was, particularly in his college days and all the way into his time with the New York Knicks. He was very active in the fellowship of Christian athletes, very outspoken about his faith. But by the time you get to 1996, here's what Bill Bradley says. He says he was, quote, put off by the exclusive truth claims of conservative Christianity. And he's bothered by the uncharitable and racist attitudes displayed by some Christians. So now, he embraces all religions, from Buddhism to Islam, so long as they seek inner peace. That's a long way from, I love Jesus Christ and serve him to the best of my ability, to, I embrace all religions as long as they seek inner peace. What happened to Bill Bradley? What do we make of Bill Bradley? A more recent example of something quite similar, former pastor of Covenant Life Church in Maryland, Joshua Harris, said this, living to glorify God means doing everything for him, his way, to point to his greatness and to reflect his goodness. Josh Harris, pastor of a very famous and well-known church, was discipled by a very famous and well-known pastor, stood before a congregation like I am this morning on many Sundays and opened God's word and taught. But in 2019, the same Joshua Harris said this. He said, I've undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. By all the measurements that I have for for defining a Christian, I'm not a Christian. Bill Bradley and, and Josh Harris's stories and the many, many, many similar ones that probably you could list as well, they bring up for us very, very significant questions that deserve an answer. What about all the people who at one time identified with the church of Jesus Christ and claimed faith, faith in Jesus Christ but, but abandoned him eventually? What about those folks? What do we make of them? What do we make of people who proclaim Christ and proclaim saving faith and and run the race for some period of time, but eventually they renounce it and walk away? What about the people who at one time were were hot with enthusiasm for for God and shared their faith actively and were active in a local church, but but eventually life has happened and they've sort of, the the, the spark seems to sort of fizzled out and, and now they really have very little time or interest or energy for the things of God. What do we make of that? Why does this happen? How are we as believers to understand it and to make sense of it? What do we do with people in that context? Well, in our text today, this is precisely the issue that Jesus addresses. And he does it by way of a parable, by telling a story. And he does it in a really sort of stunning and remarkable way, and yet in a way that's very clear and very easy for us to understand. But it's still very difficult for us to come to terms with. And I suggest to you this morning that our text before us stands really as a warning to everybody who's in this room and everybody who calls the name of Jesus Christ in their life. It's a warning. It's a warning that we have to always be about the the work of examining our faith and asking the question, do I belong to Christ? Am I the real deal? What is my motive? Well, Jesus deals with this for a particular issue, and Luke gives us a little bit of the context here at the very beginning of the chapter. Um, 
and, and I'm not going to deal much with verses 1 through 3 this morning, except we just read them. It's here that, that Luke gives us sort of a contextual note where he tells us who at this point in time is traveling with Jesus. And he identifies a, a few folks and a, and, a, and a group of folks in particular. He says that Jesus is being accompanied by his 12 apostles. They're with him and likely some other people who are following along. But what's notable in Luke here is that he says that there are some women who are traveling with Jesus as well. They're in this merry band of believers who are moving from place to place and, and, and following Christ as he teaches the good news of the kingdom. He mentions a few by name, Mary Magdalene, who we're told is, is, is healed by, some, uh, by Christ of some demons that had, that had uh, infected her soul. Of Joanna, Susanna, and we're told many others. And simply Luke summarizes by saying that, that these women were there and they were a part of the group and they provided for them, that's Jesus and the disciples, out of their means. Now, I don't, I'll come back to this issue at some point in the future, but just for your own personal study, it's worth doing. If you want to go back through Luke and note how Luke really elevates the role of women and highlights the role of women in the ministry of Jesus, unlike any of the other gospel writers. In the first century, women were considered second-class citizens. You would never, in a, in a million years, have a rabbi going around teaching a co-ed group of men and women at the same time. It was unheard of. You just wouldn't do it. And yet here Jesus is, in fact, doing that very thing. In his inner circle and in his group of followers, women and men were equal. They were the same. And, and the gospel was the same regardless of, of your gender and regardless of who you are and where you came from. None of those things mattered. The gospel broke down those barriers. And it's in a very visible way we see that here just by Jesus having the presence of ladies as a part of this sort of inner circle that's traveling with him. And he's teaching them along with the men. So you go back and look at how often Luke highlights Jesus' ministry, particularly in regards to women. We just saw in the immediate context at the end of chapter 7 a story where Jesus highlights this woman of faith who comes and washes Jesus' feet with her hair. We've seen, him, we've seen him heal the, son, the, the, the dead son of a, of a widow who had lost her only child. And we see instance after instance where Jesus comes to women and brings them the truth. And here there are ladies who are traveling in the group and Luke wants us to know that and to be sure to understand that. He doesn't give us a whole lot of other context, uh, no real time marker. He just says when a great crowd was gathered and people were coming from town to town, he said in a parable. That's all we get in verse 4. He doesn't give us much of a time marker to be able to identify this. Luke, as we mentioned a few times, often arranges the events in his gospel thematically rather than sort of chron chronologically. Uh, so we have to look to the other gospel writers like Mark, who in Mark 4, 1, gives us a little more context. He says this, Then he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd had gathered about him so that he got into a boat, and he sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. So the crowd has grown pretty, pretty significantly at this point in Jesus' ministry. And they're sort of crushing in to the point where they're at, at, a, at a beach, really, by the water, and the crowd has is, is grown to such a large size, and they're crushing in that Jesus literally makes a, a, a pulpit out of a boat and, and floats out a little ways into the water as the people crowd around on the shore. And it's in this context that Jesus speaks to the crowd in a parable. Now, we've seen in Luke's gospel um, the mention of some other short parables, but this is the first really lengthy parable that Luke records for us in his gospel. We have recorded in the New Testament somewhere between 38 and 39 parables that were spoken by Jesus. Uh, 38 to 39, you can track them all, you can find lists uh, pretty easily to list them all out for you. But this particular parable is one of only four parables that all the synoptic gospel writers record. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this particular, gospel, this particular parable and this particular teaching of Jesus. And it is one of the lengthiest ones. And in the context of this one, we get an, an explanation for what parables are and why Jesus teaches in parables. And it's worth noting, since we haven't looked too closely at this so far in our study, in case you're wondering what a parable is, it's just simply a short story uh, that, that, that uses sort of familiar scenes and everyday sort of objects and relationships to explain spiritual truths. Typically, parables have one primary meaning, and they're usually aimed at communicating one main issue. If you 
go back and read commentaries from different times in history, you'll find that many commentators at different points in history approach the parables and they try to allegorize every detail of the parable and make everything sort of have some sort of a meaning that isn't stated in the text. We don't want to approach, approach parables that way. We want to identify what the text identifies and we want to look for what is the main message, what is the primary thing that's being communicated in the parable. And so all of the parables in general are, are, are involve Jesus describing some aspect of his kingdom, helping people understand what his kingdom is like and how it's different from the kingdom of the world in which they live. And in this particular parable, Jesus is dealing with one particular issue. He's explaining, he's wanting to explain uh, both publicly and particularly privately to his disciples why people react or reacting to him in the ways that they're reacting to him. And he wants them to understand this because they're going to get the same kinds of reactions from people when they launch out and begin to share the good news. And so this parable deals with how people react to or how people respond to the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and, and so parables are, are helpful in, in communicating truths like this. He, he, he describes them here in Luke as, as secrets of the kingdom. In other places, the parables are described as mysteries. These are sort of like family secrets. But he tells the family secrets out loud with other people in earshot so that they can hear them. And he, and he uses stories, these stories, to sort of communicate secrets. And so the parables could be understood by those who were meant to understand and they would be completely odd and strange and, and, and not understandable to those who weren't meant to understand them. So the ones who were meant to get it would get it, and the ones who weren't meant to get it would, in fact, not get it. If you're a parent, you sort of have a parallel to this. If you're a mom or a dad, you know what it's like when your kids are little and they're in the car or they're in the room and you're trying to communicate something with one another that you don't want them to fully understand. You come up with all sorts of code language, right? To communicate with one another. You use pig Latin, you use whatever, you spell things out until they learn how to spell, right? And you communicate things, they can hear it, but they don't get it. But your spouse, they get it and you're able to communicate. So in some loose way, that's what's going on. You're, Jesus is communicating in a way that, that, that certain people get and other people will be still completely in the dark too. So why does Jesus do this? Why does he speak in parables? Why does he want to communicate in a way that some people are going to get and other people are not going to get? Well, he tells us that and he gives us more of a, of a sort of an explanation of this in, in Matthew's account of this particular event. Matthew 13, beginning in verse 10, Matthew records this. The disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? And he replied, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but it's not been given to them. Whoever has will be given more, and he'll have an abundance, but whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they don't see. Though hearing, they don't hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You'll be ever hearing, but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears. And they've closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. The first thing Jesus says to the disciples when they're asking him, why does he teach this way? He says, I'm teaching this way because there are some things that I have to offer, some things that I want to say, a message that I want to deliver that's meant for you, but it's not meant for other people. It's meant for you to get these things, but there are other people that I don't want to get them. The knowledge of the secrets has been given to you, but it's not been given to them. Men, God has sovereignly designed that you would hear and understand what I'm saying. And he has sovereignly designed that other people would hear and make absolutely no sense of what I'm communicating. And the gift of understanding these things is actually evidence of saving faith. The disciples are going to understand because God had gifted them with the ability to understand. Other people would not understand because they had been judicially blinded. That's what Isaiah is talking about when he says, but seeing they don't see, and hearing they do not hear or understand because they've closed their eyes. 
Jesus quotes directly from the prophet Isaiah and Isaiah chapter six. And in the context of Isaiah six, God's people Israel have closed their eyes. They've hardened their hearts against the word of the Lord. God has been speaking to them and speaking to them and speaking to them through the prophets and they've been willfully disobedient. It is as though they've closed their eyes and said, I don't want to see, I don't want to see. It's as though they've stuck their fingers in their ears and said, I don't want to hear, I don't want the truth. And they've chosen to reject the truth and chase after lies. And so God speaks through Isaiah and he says as a, as a means of, 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 of judicial judgment on his people, fine, if you don't want to hear and you don't want to see, then I'm going to communicate in ways there in which you cannot see and you cannot hear. It was God's judgment against his people to communicate in ways that they couldn't, get, they couldn't grasp. Because they had closed their heart to the truth, he says, fine, you don't want the truth? You've closed your heart to the truth that you've been exposed to? From now on, you won't be able to hear it, and you won't be able to see it, and you won't be able to understand it. Your opportunity is gone. It was God's judgment on his people because they ignored his word and disobeyed his commands. And so he seals them in their rebellion, and he seals them in their unbelief, and he cuts off their opportunity for further light. Now God still sends Isaiah the prophet to deliver the message because although the nation as a whole has rejected him and will continue to, there are individuals within the nation who will still receive the truth and believe it. And Jesus says this is for the same reason. It's the same reason as why I speak in parables. The reason I speak in parables is because there are a lot of people out there who have willfully rejected the truth that they've received. And because they've willfully rejected it, I'm gonna cut off their ability to understand what I have to say. And these parables are one of the means by which I do that. So the parables are gonna harden the hearts of people who willfully reject it, and they're gonna serve also to teach those who really want to understand the truth. When we come to parables, people will often say, or, or you'll often maybe read about parables, that Jesus taught the parables in order to make spiritual truths easier to understand, because the stories are easy to understand. But if you listen to what Jesus actually says here, the parables are not necessarily meant to make spiritual truth easier to understand. The parables were actually meant primarily to make spiritual truth harder to understand, to obscure the truth. And that's the effect that they had on most people that heard them. Most people that heard the parables that Jesus taught walked away saying, I have no idea what that was about. And so the parables discriminate. They, they, God used them to differentiate people who were inside his kingdom and those who were outside his kingdom. And they, they, they helped some people understand his kingdom, that is those who truly wanted to know, but they hardened other people in their unbelief, people who really didn't want to know. So why would he do that? Why would Jesus want to harden people in their unbelief? Why would he want to separate the crowd like this? Well, we get some, some indications of this in Luke's gospel. He says that, that the crowds are flocking to Jesus, right? He's been going a bit now for, for, for a while doing ministry. He's been teaching, he's been healing, he's been doing miraculous things, he's been saying re remarkable things. All sorts of stuff is going on around his ministry and word has begun to travel and people have been hearing about this guy. Maybe he's the Messiah. Maybe he's the one who's come to redeem Israel. Maybe he's the one who's come to overthrow Rome. Maybe he's the one who's come to, to usher in the kingdom of God and to establish the, the throne of David and sit on it and, and, and usher in the eternal kingdom that we've read about in the Old Testament. And so crowds are really flocking to Jesus to hear him. And they're coming for a lot of different reasons. There are some who are, just heard about the miracles and they want to come see a miracle. There are others who think he might be a political leader who's going to overthrow the Romans. And so they're interested in that and that's attracted them. But most of the people in these crowds were not interested in the message that Jesus had to deliver. And Jesus is not interested in attracting people who just want to show. Never does he do that. Never does he just attract people by putting on a show. And so he teaches in parables to thin out the crowd. That's like the opposite of what, you know, church growth people want to tell you, right? The crowd gets too big. You need to teach something really hard to sort of thin the crowd. That's what Jesus does. 
And so he explains. So how does this work? So the crowd comes and, and they gather. And this big crowd, they've come with all these different motives. Most of them have come because they don't want to hear the gospel. They've come for all these other reasons. They want to see miracles. They want to see a show. They want to see a political leader. They want to see if he's the Messiah. They want all these other things that are really sort of selfish in their motivation. So Jesus sits down in front of the crowd or stands in a boat in this particular occasion. And, he, and, and, and this is what he does. He looks out at the crowd and he says, let me tell you a story. A sower went out to sow. And he tossed his seed over here and he tossed his seed over there and some of it fell on the path and some of it fell on the rocky soil and some of it fell on, on soil where there was thorny thorns and weeds and some of it fell on good soil and, and it, it sprouted up a hundredfold. Let he who has ears hear. The end. Story time over. Can you imagine the look on people's faces? I mean, the folks who would come to see the miracles and the folks who would come to see the show and the folks who would come looking for a political ruler who was going to overthrow Rome would have been scratching there. He'd go, what is, what's, what's that? A sower and fields and seed? We came here looking for a miracle. We got a story? I can see a sower any day of the week walking up and down the street. What's he talking about? There's nothing about that that's worth hanging around for. We came all the way out here to hear about a sower? crops they'd walk away walk away I don't know what people are talking about this guy for but it doesn't look like much and so Jesus does this to thin out the crowd they don't understand what he's doing they don't understand what he's saying it makes no sense to, to them at all He's also doing this because he's trying to teach the disciples how and to prepare them for their own ministries because one day they're going to launch out and they're going to get the same kind of responses to their teaching that Jesus is getting to his. And he wants to prepare them so that they might understand what this is like. And so he uses a parable. He tells the story and the disciples don't get it any clearer than anybody else does initially, but they genuinely belong to Christ. They genuinely want to know what he's talking about, but they don't have enough confidence to ask him in a crowd. So they pull him aside later and say, you know, Jesus, that story about the sower, and the seeds and all that stuff, what was that all about? And Jesus explains to them the story. The sower went out to sow his seed. Such a common picture in Israel. Sower walking through a field with a bag of seed over his shoulder, grabbing a handful and slinging it in that direction, slinging it in that direction. The seed's flying everywhere and it's landing all over the place. He's just sort of broadcast spreading it everywhere. Very, very simple. Perhaps even somebody was doing that within, within eyeshot of the crowd on that day. And maybe Jesus pointed at, at that. We don't know. But Jesus says, yeah, this story is more than just that. There's, there's symbolism here. And so he tells us what the things in the story mean. He says, the, in this parable, the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. The seed is the word of God. Now, he doesn't define who the sower is, but what's understood here is that, that in this particular moment, Jesus is the sower, but I think he leaves it particularly ambiguous because really the sower can be anybody who's taking the word of God and casting it out for people to hear. And the soils here represent the hearts of men and women who are there. The hearts, the, are there, the soil is their hearts. And, and, and it represents the various ways people's hearts respond to the word of God. In this parable, the sower and the seed remain the same. Nothing changes about the seed and nothing changes about the sower. The only variable in the story is the condition of what? Of the soil, right? The soil, condition of the soil. Not the makeup of it, but the condition of it. And the point is this. Not everybody is equally receptive to the good news of Christ. Not everybody is equally receptive. And, the, and so Jesus takes here the sort of the ways people are responding to his teaching and he sort of groups them in categories and illustrates them with these different kinds of soil. And so the first one he tells us about is a sower went out and sowed his seed and some of it fell along the path and was trampled underfoot and the birds of the air devoured it. The pathway soil, right? If you were to go through a field in, in first century, you'd see like pathways that were sort of just worn down through the middle of the fields. It's where people walked in between the fields. If you go in my backyard right now in between all the weeds, you'd find a pathway that my dog runs back and forth from one side of the yard to the other. And, and because they run back and forth, it just pounds the ground down really hard in those areas and nothing grows there. 
And so in the middle of a field, you'd walk, people walk back and forth and it pounds the ground. There's nothing growing, becomes a pathway or a roadway. And inevitably, when the sower is throwing his seed out, some of that seed splashes onto the road. Well, it just stands to reason that that seed's not going to grow, right? It's not. The road is hard. The seed can't penetrate into the soil. People are walking all over the top of it. And before long, you know, the birds come flying over and they're like, ooh, dinner. And they fly down and they pick up the seed and it's gone. Nothing ever happens with that one. What does that mean? Jesus says this is the, the unresponsive heart. The ones along the path are those who hear, they've heard, but the devil comes along and takes away the word from their heart so that they may not believe and be saved. It's the unresponsive heart. It's the person who, who hears the good news that Christ has to deliver, uh, but they're just unresponsive to it. The, 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 the good news never penetrates their mind. It never permeates down to their conscience. It never, it never sort of gets into their heart to any degree or the other. It's just sort of in one ear and it's out the other. They hear it, they literally hear the words, but the meaning of it goes nowhere but out of their mind pretty quickly. It's the person who's self-absorbed and self-sufficient. It's the person who doesn't see any need for Christ, doesn't see any need for salvation. He's blind to his own sin and blind to his own eternal destiny, not concerned about the things of God, concerned about other things in life, not interested to hear about sin and, and hell and salvation and all of these things. Just doesn't see a need for it doesn't see a need for it. First Corinthians chapter 1 verse 18, Paul writes, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. There are a lot of people who hear the good news of Christ and to them it's just, it's just nonsense. It's foolish. What do you, what do you mean? You believe in, you got your invisible daddy in the sky who, you know, did what? Nah. That seems ridiculous. Second Corinthians chapter four, verse four said the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the glory or the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. People, John tells us that they love their sin and they're entrenched in their sin and they don't want anybody confronting or exposing that. And so anything that comes that way and comes at them that way, they just blow it right out of their minds. Don't wanna hear it, not interested, forget it, move on to somebody else. don't give it a second thought maybe they're prideful they don't want to admit that they're sinners maybe they're just indifferent they just simply don't care maybe they're apathetic maybe eternity and and soul matters just don't matter to them maybe they're just procrastinators just say yeah 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 we'll worry about that some other day but not right now I got other things going on maybe they're just too busy to stop and think about it but everywhere the good news of Christ goes, there are people who, don't, who just reject it out of, out of hand. It goes in one ear and it goes out the other. It doesn't make any sense to them. They don't want to think about it. They don't want to hear it. They move on. It could be active rejection or it can be passive indifference. But either way, it's rejection. And so this pathway soil, it represents both the hostile atheist and, the, and your, your apathetic neighbor who just lives next door and doesn't want to hear all your religious stuff. Anytime the gospel goes out, there are people who respond to it that way. When Jesus taught, there were many, many people who responded that way. When the apostles taught, there were many, many people who responded that way. If you get serious about sharing your faith in Christ with other people in your world with lost people that, that don't know Christ, you will get this response, guaranteed. Might even be the majority response that you get. But not everyone responds that way. Jesus says in verse six, some fell on the rock and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Again, a very easy illustration to understand. There was some soil in the area that, was, that had a layer of topsoil that was very thin, but underneath that was a layer of limestone. And so the seed would fall on that and it could initially penetrate the soil and take some sort of root and it would begin to sort of start to grow up and you begin to see a little plant emerge from the ground, but it couldn't last because its roots could never penetrate through the, the limestone and get down to the water table where it would you know, really enjoy the nutrients and the moisture it needed to survive in the heat of the, that particular part of the world. And so it would grow up for a little while, but because it couldn't get enough moisture, when the heat of the sun came out, it would eventually dry up and wither away 
and be gone. And Jesus says that there's a group of people who hear the gospel, who hear the good news, and they respond just like that. They're superficial and they're shallow. Initially, when they hear the good news of the gospel, and initially the way they respond looks quite genuine. It looks like they're people who are hearing it and they're receiving it. There's this early excitement and there's some sort of a joyful response. And in, in some sense, they embrace the teaching and they appear at least initially to be on the right track, but it doesn't last. It doesn't last. Notice he says they receive it with joy. It indicates an emotional, a positive, emotional, joyful response. This person is, is filled with enthusiasm and joy. There, there's, a, there's an initial love for the message and love for Christ and love for the people of God and love for the church and love for whoever delivered the message to them. They, they often are so enthusiastic they can't wait to share with somebody else. And it looks, by all outward appearances, to be a model of true and genuine conversion. It appears to be belief and repentance and faith and obedience. But time moves on. And eventually we find out that it's only temporary. That it lasts for a season. And Luke tells us what happens. Eventually trouble comes. Eventually problems happen in their life. Eventually persecution begins to take place. And a time of testing comes. And when it does, they fall away. They fall away. Once their, their faith is put to the test and, and there's hardship and there's pain and there's persecution and there's suffering, that faith that looked real initially, it, it withers up like under like that little plant under the hot sun. It just withers away and it's gone in a moment. And we find out then in actuality, there never was any real repentance. There never was any real wrestling and brokenness with sin. There really was no dying to self. There never was any, you know, uh, dying to self, taking up a cross and following after Christ. There was no willingness to suffer for his sake. There was no, there was no genuineness to their salvation. They're with Christ as long as everything's going great. But when pain comes, they walk away. When suffering comes, they walk away. When disappointment with other Christians come, comes, they walk away. When sickness and infirmity comes, they walk away. When their romance goes bad, they walk away. When the job that they wanted, they don't get it, or, or the promotion they want, they don't get it, or they get laid off, they walk away. And just as suddenly as they had received that message, they fall away. They're gone. The superficial, this shallow-hearted individual may be baptized. They may serve in the church. They may apparently function as a model member for a while. But eventually, eventually what happens is testing and trouble comes into their life and it reveals the reality of their heart. Their faith never took a deep root. It was always shallow and superficial. You just couldn't tell from the surface. Such a warning in that, isn't there? A lot of ways we could apply that. We apply it first to our own selves and ask the question, listen, what about my faith? Is, is that me? Am I the kind that, that everybody on the outside thinks that I'm the real deal, but the reality is, it's just temporary, I'm superficial, I'm shallow. As soon as it gets hard, I'm out the door. Certainly a caution about how we deal with other people and how quick we are to make assumptions about others. But it's not just that. Jesus says there's another category of people. He says some fell among the thorns and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And as for the the, 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 what fell among the thorns are the ones who hear but they go on their way but as they go on their way excuse me they're choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life and their fruit does not mature 
So whereas the, the superficial heart, the, the, the one on the rocky soil, it, just, it doesn't endure because it, it doesn't have a deep root and it can't get the moisture and so it, it burns away. This one endures, it seems like, for some season. It just never bears any kind of actual spiritual fruit. And again, it looks like the real deal from the very beginning. And the seed takes root, it begins to grow up, but it doesn't last. What happens is this seed has fallen in with, with some thorns and some really weedy thorns that grew in the first century. It could grow up to six feet in height and, and you could always see them when you were sowing. But when, when the crop began to come up, you could see the weeds come up. And why is it that weeds always grow faster than what you're trying to grow intentionally? That happens in my yard all the time. I could try to grow something and I can't do it for the life of me, but man, I'm a great weed gardener. I don't do anything and they just show up. Apparently that's been true historically. And that's what would happen. The plant would, would begin to grow up and the weeds would grow faster and they would begin to steal all the nutrients and the sunlight and begin to just choke out the actual plant so that it never grew and produced fruit. This is the worldly heart, Jesus says. It's not trouble, it's not persecution, it's not suffering that, that is the problem with this particular individual. This person, is, is, it's a different thing altogether. It's the allurement of the world around. It's, it's, the, it's the draw of possessions and of career and of houses and of cars and of hobbies and of clothing and of money and of, of, of retirement and of vacations and all the shiny things that the world has to offer. All of the things that can quickly encroach upon our hearts and dominate our thoughts and dominate our minds and dominate our attention. Whereas initially, they're interested in the gospel. Initially, they're interested in the things of God and they're interested in responding and they look like genuine believers from the beginning. And they show signs of growth at first. And if you ask them, they would certainly, are you a Christian? They would absolutely say to you, what kind of question is that? Of course, of course I'm a Christian. But the problem is, the problem is they love the world more than they love Christ. And the things of the world begin to slowly encroach upon their hearts and that love for Christ begins to fade. And that concern for the things of God begins to get choked out by other concerns. And before long, there's no thought of it whatsoever. First John 2, John said, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of the eyes, the boasting of what he, has do what he has and what he does comes not from the Father but from the world. And the world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Don't fall in love with the world. If you fall in love with the world, number one, you're an idiot because all of that stuff is passing away and the things that God has to offer are eternal. So you're embracing and loving something that does not last and will not suffice and will not satisfy, but it will allure you into believing that it does. And like the rocky soil, this person initially looks like the real deal. But concerns of the world encroach. You know, we're, we're, this is a great danger in our nation. We're we're a wealthy, wealthy people. Uh, Americans are. We have a lot of things. And we have a lot of stuff. We have a lot of possessions. We have a lot of things that that are a part of our life, and they all they all encroach upon our mind and our hearts and our thoughts and our attention and our affections. And it is entirely possible to identify ourselves with Christ, but to actually never think about Christ, but to be thinking about the things of the world. It's entirely possible for us to identify with Christ and to say we love him, but our real affection is for the stuff that we have. It's, 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 it's possible for us to identify with the Lord Jesus Christ and say we love him and we are all about his kingdom, when the reality is 99.9% .9 of our time and attention is given to the things of the world. It's the worldly heart. And eventually, it results in a plant that bears no fruit. And Jesus says finally in verse 8, some falls on the good soil, and it grew and yielded a hundredfold. It's for that in the good soil, verse 15, there are those who hearing the word hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. What is the difference between the good soil and the other three soils? There's two things, and only two things that are different. Endurance and faith. The good soil endures, excuse me, endurance and fruit. Endurance 
and fruit. The good soil bears a plant that endures. The, the heat comes and it doesn't wither away. Suffering comes and pain comes and difficulty comes and it doesn't wither under the pressure and in fact gets stronger. The good soil endures. Whatever, whatever life throws at it, it hangs on and it makes it through to the other side all the way to the end. And the good soil bears fruit. That's what he says. The good soil is a life that, that grows up and, and fruit comes off of the plant that identifies what kind of a plant it is. So in behaviors and in actions that sort of verify the claim of the heart. So the person claims to know Jesus Christ and the fruit of the Spirit comes alive in them and it becomes evident to anybody who's paying attention that that person genuinely belongs to Christ because what's happening is they're seeing change. They're seeing the evidence of a redeemed heart. They're seeing what it looks like when the Spirit of God indwells a believer and transforms him from glory to glory and makes him or her more and more like Jesus. They see where there used to be anger and there used to be hatred, there's now patience and there's now kindness. Where there used to be a constant discontent with everything, there's now joy. Where there used to be sort of a, 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 a conniving and a scheming in life, there's now a trust in the Lord and what he does. It's fruit. Where they used to love themselves and love the things that relate to themselves. They now love the Lord and they love the body of Christ. And everybody can see that a change has taken place because they're bearing fruit. They bear fruit and they endure. I don't know if you've seen any of the, the clips this week of, or this weekend of, from the, the, the believers in Ukraine. You talk about a group of people who identify with Christ who are going through a time of testing and a time of trouble and a time of hardship. You can bet that that testing and trouble, will, will, it'll, it'll, it'll sift out the crowd. Those who are the rocky soil, they'll disappear and they'll never show back up. But for the true church, you know what it'll do? It'll do nothing but strengthen their faith. It'll do nothing but purify their faith. And they'll come out on the other side holding on to Christ and they'll come out on the other side shining even more brilliantly for the Lord. James writes, consider it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. Why? Because those trials produce patience and they produce maturity. And Peter writes about this. He says, your faith is like gold going through a refiner's fire and God puts you through the heat and life and what that tends to do is it burns the dross off and, and true faith comes out on the other side. It doesn't burn up. It comes out on the other side more pure than it was when it went through the trouble. The genuine, the good soil, the genuine believer, when trouble comes, like Dennis read earlier, they, they, they're able to look to things that are unseen rather than the things that are seen and they endure that's the only difference between the good soil and the others endurance and fruit if you want to know if you're a Christian that's how you that's how you figure it out if you're wondering about whether or not you belong to Christ, then, then look to those two things. Those are the two, two sort of metrics that we have here that Jesus gives us, endurance and faith. When you ask yourself the question, am I, do I belong to him? Am I the good soil? Then the question is, does my faith endure? When trouble comes and when pain comes and when heartache comes, then when there's difficulty and when there's testing, what happens to my faith? Does it wither up under the pressure or does, does it sustain me through it and get me to the other side? And then the second question is, what about fruit? If I look back over the, the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years of my Christian life, can I look and I, can, I, can I see the evidence that the Spirit of God is building out the fruit of the Spirit in my life? Can I see how I'm not the same as I was then? I talk to people around me, would they say, listen, that person's different. They're not selfish like they used to be. She's not as angry as she used to be. There seems to be a joy there that, 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 that he didn't have before. Something's changed. I don't know what it is, but there's something different. Really, the message this morning is a call to examine our own hearts and our own lives and ask the question, first and foremost, am I the good soil? Am I the good soil? I have story after story, year after year, of Bill Bradley's and of Joshua Harris's, out of many other prominent people in the Christian world 
who turn out to be rocky soil or thorny soil. And many more illustrations of that probably in your own circle of influence. The question we have to ask for that is what about me? Is that me? Or is my, my, my heart the good soil? Does it endure? Is there fruit? If you look at your own life this morning and you don't see evidence of these things, then you need to understand what Jesus is saying in this story, in this parable. He's trying to communicate to the crowd and to his disciples that that, that the kind of faith that's real endures and bears fruit. If your faith does not endure, it isn't real. If it doesn't bear fruit, it isn't Christianity. It's a false gospel, and it won't last. I sadly see this all the time, and Jim sees this a lot as well, when we're dealing with funerals, particularly with people who aren't a part of our church, someone dies, and everybody wants to find some shred of faith somewhere in their life that they can latch on to and have some hope that they're in heaven experiencing eternal life. And we'll hear stories like when we ask the question, are they a Christian? Well, they, they went to church back in they used to go to church. They haven't been in church about 20 years, but, but they, they accepted Christ. They got baptized. Well, he didn't, didn't really live much like a Christian. I mean, if you looked at his life, he kind of, you know, did this and did that and the other thing. You really didn't see it. But, but deep down inside, they were, they were faithful. They really believed. The parable of the sower and the soils cuts right through that kind of nonsense. No, they didn't believe. They died lost, and they're spending eternity in hell. Better to find that out now than for your family to find it out at your funeral. Examine your heart this morning, friends. Do you belong to Christ? Does your faith endure? Is it bearing fruit? That's the question we need to consider this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, uh, when we consider this, We need ears to hear. Because it's easy for us to say, oh yeah, yeah, I got this. But it's hard for us to take a good look and to be honest with ourselves. Forbid it, Lord, that anybody in this room abandon their faith and be the rocky soil or the thorny soil. Lord, give us all clear eyes to see who we are and where we stand with you this morning. Is our faith real? Have we really died to ourselves and come alive to you? Do we see evidence that you're working in us, changing us into what we were not but now are? We're not perfect, Lord, we know that. We never will be. That's not the issue. The issue is are we sensitive to your spirit? Are we loving your word? Are we walking with you? Do the concerns of the kingdom of God take priority over the concerns of the world around us and the things that relate to it? Or if there's thorny and rocky soil hearts in this room, Lord, let them see it this morning and draw them to yourself in faith and repentance that they might be changed and born again. Do your work among us, Holy Spirit. We pray in Christ's name, amen.